0: Welcome to The Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of May, we're honoring the haunting horrors of Mike Flanagan, the man behind the likes of the isolation horror of Hush, Supernatural Terror of Oculus, and numerous Stephen King adaptations for the silver screen. And today's haunting is one that you might not be expecting, that being Ouija Origin Evil, the follow-up to the original 2014 film Ouija. While the original film may not have been the greatest, the sequel is a true display of Flanagan's prowess as a horror filmmaker, and one that deserves more credit for his ability to disregard baggage of past and previous connections his sequel might have, in allowing origin evil to really thrive on its own. And for today's episode, I'm joined by Ken Sledge, the host of the horror YouTube channel, Sledgehammer Horror. In addition to being incredibly knowledgeable about the genre and a gracious host, Ken's show Sledgehammer Horror is constantly entertaining and informative as he interviews all manner of horror fans, from actors to directors to musicians and content creators about their love of horror. So be sure to check out Sledgehammer Horror on YouTube, and you can follow the show on Twitter at SledgehammerHOR and Ken himself at Kenny Sledge. So without further ado, here's our convo on Ouija origin of evil. Ken welcome to the show man.
1: Hey, thank you so much i'm super excited to be here
0: yeah it was a, a pleasure chatting with you for your show sledgehammer horror about my first horror experience being a poltergeist which i hope everybody checks out on ken's youtube channel uh sledgehammer horror but uh yeah so today you're here to chat about mike flanagan's uh ouija origin evil
1: yes sir very excited about it, man
0: it's one of those movies that i feel like does not get enough credit mm-hmm. both in being an entertaining sequel that in a lot of ways surpasses the original film, but also just kind of like showing Flanagan's prowess for being a fantastic horror filmmaker. So I'm curious, what was your sort of first introduction to Mike Flanagan?
1: Uh, Oculus, actually, Um, I went and seen Oculus in the theater, and I completely fell in love with Mike Flanagan at that moment. Um, And I'm actually going to be releasing a top 10 favorite horror movie sequels. Number two on that list, actually is Dr. Sleep and I feel like nice we're talking about Mike Flanagan as a director in the horror community Mike Flanagan is a very well-known very big name but I feel like in the whole world he's one of the most underrated directors because he can do the little things like with Dr. Sleep one thing I love so much about that movie is it could have been a standalone movie it does not have mm-hmm. to be a sequel I mean up until the third act it could have stood alone as its own movie and Flanagan yes. just has that way of telling a story in a horror movie or TV show for that matter. When you go to the haunting of Hill house with haunting of blind manor, just the way that his storytelling is absolutely beautiful.
0: Definitely agree with you in terms of like the little things, right? He's able to really pick up on little nuances, whether it be relationships or just in terms of like building up scares and stuff and things that have a payoff later on during the course of his films. But he's definitely one of those filmmakers that it'd be very easy to just simply label him as like, the go-to Stephen King guy that is that is obviously kind of built up this pedigree for being the go-to guy Mm -hmm. to adapt those works. But I think you really get a true sense of him as just a filmmaker in general and a love of horror in general from a lot of his earlier works. Not to say that that's not present in his Stephen King works, but at the same time, like I think that the more he becomes associated with those adaptations and things like that, I almost want to show people his earlier films first, just to kind of like be a good primer for a true introduction to him and to show like he's fantastic at what he's been doing recently. But it, if anything, it makes me want to see him do something original again, something that is just sort of fully in his own vernacular, even though he is obviously fantastic at adapting Stephen King's works. And he's familiar with that vernacular and bringing it to film.
1: Yeah. Well, you're talking about his work. Look at Oculus. And another one that I don't think is talked about enough is Hush. Yeah. Hush is a movie that builds the suspense throughout the whole movie and you're on the edge of your seat for literally the whole film. Yeah. And it's just, he's, he's, you know, like you were just saying, he's this generations when it comes to direction, you know, the, the Stephen King adaptions, he's gonna be known to the hor- younger horror generation as their Stephen
0: King. Absolutely, yeah. But today you picked uh, Ouija Origin Evil for us to talk about. And, you know, honestly, when I was reaching out to people to have people come on to talk about one of their favorite Mike Flanagan movies, I was not expecting anybody to pick that movie, but then within the first 15 minutes of revisiting it, it becomes clear that it really is one of the sort of quintessential Mike Flanagan films, just in terms of obviously quality, but also him being able to do yet again, what seems like it should be sort of the unimaginable almost based on sort of the original film.
1: And it's funny because I didn't think, I'm in the minority that didn't think the original was a huge piece of shit like a lot of people did. You know, that movie got slammed by everybody. And I didn't think it was that awful until this came out. And you see, (laughs) once I watched this, I was like, wow, this really, you know, shows me how bad that first one truly was. But, um, you know, even Lulu Wilson, that was Doris, Mm. she nailed it in this film. And what I love about this film is you really feel for this family. You know, they've lost the patriarch of the family Mm. and they're trying to get by and they're even, you know, they're doing the seances and trying to give people closure. You know, they're doing good, but they're also doing it to try to make money to survive. So you do have that feeling of, you know, oh, like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like you want so much good for this family, but at the same right. time, you're like, oh, they're fucking with people at the same time. <laughs> In the right way, they're not trying to be, you know, mean or hateful, but they are giving false hope to people at the same time.
0: That So that was one of the elements that I was surprised at how well that feeling comes across, because I de- obviously I picked up on that as well. But it's also just like Flanagan's ability to introduce characters that are clearly like exploiting other people's grief, but yet you're rooting for them the entire time because the basis of why they're doing that is is that it's not malicious in the sense that they just want to like steal money from people because they can. It's like, well, they're in this shitty situation, of course, losing the patriarch. Like you said, their father and the husband and they just need to survive. And
1: yeah,
0: he really does a great job of establishing. It's about survival. It's not like we want to just be gleeful. We're not they're not gleeful grifters. Right. right. It's not Like we're just going to do this because we can, which I think actually really fosters a lot of sympathy for them, more so right. than just a family that's lost someone. It's like it's a family that's trying to survive. And it's a fractured one of that. Mm hmm. But also I think what really makes this be a standout sequel is that, and I'm like you, I guess I didn't like the first film, but at the same time it was more so just like forgettable. It was kind of just like, it's just this, they want to do adaptive from a board game for whatever reason, make a cheap horror movie out of it. And it didn't work. But I think Flanagan deserves all the credit in the world in terms of taking the reins from something that was established that wasn't good, not the worst thing we've seen, but not good, And yet he's able to make it memorable in a way that really kind of like exposes his strengths as a filmmaker and family and tying it to that in a way that makes for a really remarkable sequel.
1: And I love, we're talking about Flanagan's storytelling, the way that he tells the story and the way that he makes them break all three rules of the Ouija board is so genius, you know? And one scene I want to talk about, the scene where she looks through the viewfinder and she sees Doug Jones who's playing the the monster and he ends up, when she goes to the mirror and he grabs her and bends her backwards and puts his arm down her throat. Mm. I love his camera work at that point to where as he's switching scenes, you're going back and forth from seeing the monster to not seeing the monster with her mouth just wide open. To me, that is, you know, exorcist level terrifying when you see a little kid making those, you know, disjointed facial expressions like that to me is something that Flanagan nailed in this film. Cause anytime you see Doris with that wide open, you know, stretched out mouth is so terrifying to me. Little girls to me are the scariest damn thing in the world. <laughs> being, being the father of two little girls. Those, they are the scariest thing in the world to me. And, um, you know, th- he nailed it in this film with that because, and another thing I like is it is a surprise prequel because, mm. like you said, the first one was so forgettable. I forgot that this was, you know, a- until the post credit scene with Lynn Shea, then it clicks to you. And you're like, that's what's going on here. Because the sewing right. up her mouth, once they start sewing up the mouth, you're like, wait a minute, there's something mm-hmm. very familiar. I felt like Biff in Back to the Future too, like there's something very <laughs> familiar about all this. <laughs> you know,
0: like at that point, you found you're like, the, yeah, you found the almanac by the end of it.
1: <laughs> so it's it's just one of those movies that um and even part of the storytelling with the, the preacher, the father, um, mm-hmm. played by Henry Thomas, when he thinks of the name, it's not actually his wife's name, but a name he thought of. Those little details are things that most people would let slip just go. But Flanagan nails that. You get you almost get the chills when he's like, That wasn't my wife's name. Right. That's just what I was thinking.
0: Yeah. And I think that in terms of like the scares, the reason why that scene that you mentioned works so well is that there's two scenes before that that are essentially like buildups to that, right? There's one where she's looking through the the uh, Ouija monocle and I don't believe she sees anything. And then the second time she starts seeing the shadows and she starts hearing things. And then the next time she does it, there's that big payoff. And that yeah. really just shows that like Flanagan doesn't waste a moment in this film. Everything feels like it serves a purpose and that's because it does. And That's such a sort of like simplistic thing to say, or just you would think that everybody would abide by that. And yet, how often is that the case with filmmakers? Um, But I think also just in terms of the quality of the scares, I forgot that this was a PG-13 movie just because of how terrifying it was. And movies like this, I think really stand up as being an example of like, well, people that say PG-13 horror is not horror, it's not scary or whatever, that's complete bullshit. Cause this movie really is the best, sort of extrapolation of that. And mm-hmm. Flanagan handles it in a way where I think the back end of the film is definitely the scarier portion of it, but it has more of a heightened payoff because he's building to it the entire course of the movie.
1: Yeah, well, like you said, you don't have to have a whole bunch of blood, a whole bunch of cussing, and a whole bunch of titties to make a scary movie. Right. So you could absolutely make a terrifying PG-13 movie, and if anybody needs any proof of that, just watch this. Right. I mean, even at the end when you have, um, her name Mm Lena. when you're you think she's going to free the mom but then you look and the eyes are white and she does no know the stat like what the hell you know like at (laughs) first like she did it she freed her she sewed the mouth we're good to go and then that happens and then Mm -hmm. you know she's playing with the ouija board in her own blood that's to me i think the scariest scene in the whole movie is when the doctor at the end looks into the room and then you see you know the sister running on the roof behind him yeah like that to me is so terrifying man like that's so scary like I said, little girls to me are the scariest thing in the world because they're supposed to be so sweet and innocent so when you get movies like the exorcist or you know this movie where you got the little girl the sweet innocent little girl that becomes possessed you know that's Mm. to me so terrifying because that innocence is gone and you have a monster inside that beautiful shell so that's why these to me are so terrifying man
0: Yeah. And I think that why that scene is sold so well is that Flanagan's playing around with space in a really unique way. Right. And I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, one of the scariest things in horror movies are scares where it's just somebody moving very quickly or moving right at the screen in a way like that, where and Flanagan's panning of that scene when the doctor's looking in through the window and it pans. and You just see this little girl like basically sprinting towards him on the ceiling. I mean, that is a quality not unlike an Exorcist movie or something like that, or The Exorcist, right? This idea that there's a possession, but then also we're kind of like defying the uh, the natural way that people move or the the uh, laws of gravity and things like that, which yeah. I love because the film doesn't overexpose you to any of those things throughout mm-hmm. the course of it. Again, like that's part of why I really like that he backends the film with a lot of the scares, is that by the time we get these moments, we're not burnt out on them, right? I think. Right. That's the biggest um, knock against things like jump scares. It's not that jump scares can't be effective, it's that jump scares are overutilized so much that yeah. they lose their importance or just their effectiveness.
1: Well, and you want to talk about it, with this movie, the thing that Flanagan does, and another movie I'd like to bring up real quick is Before I Wake. Mm. Um, have mm-hmm. you seen Before I Wake? I have. Flanagan, you know, with this movie, with the haunting of Hill House, the haunting of Blind Manor, Before I Wake, he has that way of telling a supernatural story, but mm. giving it a lot of heart, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of emotional moments in this movie, Before I Wake is another one that, you know, you get to the end of that movie and you're completely devastated. Mm. Um, but in this movie, how they want so bad to talk to their dad again, and how she wants so bad to talk to her husband again. Like when she they're talking about the shower, when they first do the Ouija board, and you see that little glimmer of hope in her eye, Flanagan has that way of making you feel, which also when you start to get that feeling And so connected with these characters you care about them even more so the lack of jump scares that's i think what you're saying what i'm I'm playing into here is he gets the emotion with you and then he also has the lack of overuse of the jumps so when they do come they are super effective because you're really pulling for these people to survive
0: yeah absolutely and i think that that's one of the elements of all of his films that he gives such a great attention to and that's sort of like the sense of family right and It's always interesting, too, because like he essentially has crafted this cinema family for himself, right? This idea that he uses a lot of these recurring actors. I mean, we've got Elizabeth uh, Reeser, Lulu Wilson, of course, Henry Thomas, Kate Siegel, who's in a brief uh, scene of this film. And his ability to not only like have this collective of insanely talented people and jump from project to project and give them the same attention to detail where they feel like they're playing obviously different characters, But at the same time, they're able to really come across as real people. And uh, for the most part, obviously, they're marred by tragedy or a uh, traumatic event of some sort. And he really does a fantastic job of examining grief in this film in a way that doesn't feel overly exploitive on his Mm -hmm. part as a filmmaker. But he ensures that, obviously, the haunting element is very exploitive of their grief, which is at the root of the best hauntings, right? This is not a family that was randomly picked. They are a family that is basically like ripe for a haunting because as we see all of the scares and all of the possession stuff is based around that initial grief and the ghost or the spirit plays right into that.
1: Yeah. And you know, at the beginning when they're given the three rules of the Ouija board, you know, they're going to break all three, Yeah. but, and you hear the graveyard thing. You're like, I'm not going to go out to a graveyard <laughs> to play this, but the right. way that Flanagan again, writes it in there, they're playing mm-hmm. in the graveyard the whole time. They never say yeah. goodbye. Uh, they play you know she plays alone you have all these things that are happening and you're like you are brilliant man you Mm. found a way to make all this work in a way that is believable that's another thing i love about this movie is there's nothing overly far-fetched in this movie
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it definitely avoids a lot of these sort of i guess haunting tropes in a lot of ways or things that feel just very like contrived in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways and i think that Flanagan again, he uses such a good his sense of space and he really uses like that house setting to the best of its abilities. Right. And I think yeah. I even read that it was the same house from uh, that movie Lights Out that came out a couple of yeah. years ago. Yeah, it was like the same house, which was pretty cool. But it just his ability to take a space and then make that space interesting for the entire course of the movie. Like the house evolves, essentially. Right. We start in the seance room then we go to the upstairs portion of it, but also like we learn about the basement and the rich history that the basement has and uh, more so a disturbing history that the basement has Uh, and his ability to just really have a great sense of space, but also to not uh, underdevelop any of the sort of settings for the film. And like
1: you said, it's almost like the house is growing as the movie goes because we're learning more and more, just as we're learning more and more about the characters and the possessions that are happening, we're learning more and more about the, the physical nature of the house but the background of the house too. So Mm -hmm. we're building two different stories at once that are conjoining at the same time. And that's Flanagan right there, man. It's brilliant, brilliant.
0: How do you think that he handles um, setting the prequel during like the late 60s? How do you think he kind of does in taking us back in time, but then at the end of that, like actually connecting it to the original film?
1: Wonderful, because what what I was saying about Flanagan, this is why I brought it up earlier on, with Dr. Sleep, it could be a standalone movie. Hmm. It's not reliant on The Shining. And that goes double for this. You know, there's no point in this movie where, I mean, like I said, the first time I watched it, I didn't even know it was a prequel until we got to the end. You know, he did not have to rely on anything from the first one, which would be actually the second one. But, you know, the original one, he didn't have to worry about using anything from that to make this his own. You know, he didn't have to lean on that. He didn't have to use that as a crutch like a lot of sequels do. But he made it his own. At the end, he ties it together beautifully, and then you get that post-credit scene with Lin mm-hmm. Shea and it just clicks with, like, "Oh my gosh, this this was a prequel the whole time." You know, because right. I didn't know it was a prequel going in. Right. You know. Yeah, neither I did went I. went into it, and I, you start watching it. You know, the names are a little familiar because I feel the same way as you did about the first one. I didn't think it was complete garbage. I just thought it was forgettable. It was a middle-of-the-road mm. movie. You know, yeah. to me, it was like the truth or dare. You know, these teenagers yep. that are out playing mm-hmm. a game. Like, it was just a forgettable type movie. Yeah. But to go in here and find out at the end of this prequel, it just blew. I went and rewatched the first one after I watched this one. And I was like, man, this movie compared <laughs> to <laughs> Origins of Evil is just it's not very good. The storytelling's right. not good. The character development isn't good. It had some great actors in it. But the development of everything, you don't care about it as much as you care about these people.
0: Yeah, and I think that he always has the right sort of handling of, I guess we'll call them sequels, but in reality, like Doctor Sleep and this, they're more of companion pieces. They're not necessarily sequels, um, but they're a continuation of a universe that are connected in the best way possible because it's not over... And it's funny, I was just talking to somebody about Doctor Sleep. I feel like you could walk into Doctor Sleep and you could enjoy that movie without having seen The Shining. Obviously, you're going to get so much more out of it, it's gonna be much more significant, all of these things and you won't understand necessarily all the references and why the significance of certain events. But at the end of the day, you're still gonna enjoy that movie because Flanagan knows to 100% shackle yourself to what came before is going to actually end up probably hindering what he's yes. making as this new uh, continuation. And I definitely felt that way about Origin of Evil as well. Like it's so phenomenal and it's just barely referencing The original that Mm -hmm. it feels like it's its own thing and that's really comes across in in just his sensibilities as a filmmaker but also the way he approaches like scares and things of that nature and it just it allows the film to breathe free from the baggage of the previous film and i think that it's great that they did not call this ouija Two, just because if they had done something like that then everybody would have been like well it doesn't matter who's making it. It's so heavily associated with the previous film. But um, I think that this movie definitely not only serves as one of the best examples of Flanagan's ability to come in with something pre-established and still able to make it his own. Um, right. In a really, really creative way.
1: And I'm, I'm looking at his filmography right now. I mean, you look at his filmography and there's nothing in there that is a, a piece of shit. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I hate to be blunt like that, but there's just nothing in there that I look at and go, oof, what was he thinking there? Yeah. You know, because he's just, he's so brilliant. I mean, you look at Gerald's game, like I said, The Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, Mm -hmm. Hush, um, Oculus, Before I Wake, Midnight Mass, all these movies that we've seen and we're big fans of, Mm -hmm. and he just knows how to play the game. Yeah. You know. And
0: it, it's you're right. It's definitely rare that with a filmmaker that kind of like comes out of nowhere, that the first two films at the very least are not ones that are pretty rough, but you at least see a glimmer of who they will hopefully evolve into down the line. But with yeah. him, you're absolutely right. I mean, every single film he uses and he's basically like expanding upon his own sort of haunting lexicon in a way or vernacular yeah. uh, in a way that Yeah, it just, it never feels like he is just solely kind of resting on the success of the previous film, right? He's like, oh, I made one good haunting film, so maybe I'll try to do the same type of thing or something. It feels like he's always making these leaps and bounds and strides that I'm really excited uh, for whatever he makes next that is wholly original and 100% his because he's been honing his sort of Stephen King skills in a lot of ways, which at the same time, everything he makes, you see him evolving on his own sensibilities, not just in terms of like adapting Stephen King's work, but you see him getting a little more experimental with everything. And I think maybe that was one of the elements of like Bly Manor that I wasn't necessarily, that was not like my favorite, um, favorite adaptation that he's done, but I was able to see him flexing new muscles and seeing him experiment in a way that I hadn't before. And so to see him really take what he's been learning over the course of the last, I don't know, five or six films, and then doing something a hundred percent his just has me really excited for the future.
1: Well, and like you said, you got, um, Oculus, you've got Ouija origins of evil, the haunting of Hill house, haunting of Bly Manor, which are all essentially haunting type movies. Yeah. But none reminds you of the other. He's right. completely original with each one of those, whether it be the series, whether it be the movies, Before I Wake is a type of haunting, supernatural movie. Mm -hmm. But you don't, obviously with Bly House and, or Bly Manor and Hill House, there are similarities because of the cast and type of story. But you don't get that, oh, this is a recycled scene from the last one. There's no recycled haunting type scenes that he does, which is, as someone who's watched haunting movies their whole life, it's hard to come up with an original haunting type movie. And yet he does it every single time
0: he makes one. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that is something that, again, a lot of, maybe we'll just put it uh, nicely, like lesser filmmakers uh, would probably have a tendency to do that, to just be like, well, here's an element that worked really well in, in haunting film one I made and then two and then three and then four. And then it just ends up feeling like a reductive sort of mashup of things they've already done. Whereas Flanagan, I mean, again, this film really cannot be understated in just how this is essentially like the blueprint, I feel like, for making a horror sequel in a lot of ways. And again, it's not necessarily, uh, I wouldn't call it a sequel or even necessarily like a prequel. I would always pitch it as like a companion piece because it has, it's connected, but at the same time, it's not essential that you watch the first one or the one that preceded it, Um, which I think is why I like that post credit scene so much, because that's when you get to see Lin Shay and seeing that she was obviously from the original film, you're like, oh, okay, I see how this is connected, but right. this to enjoy origin of evil, it's not reliant on watching the first film, which again, if you, I haven't gone back to try to watch the first film after watching this one, but I think I'm going to avoid that. Cause if yeah. anything, it would just make me want to go back and rewatch origin of evil.
1: And, and it does cause you watch that first one again and you're like, man, there's so many things. Like I said, it, it's hard now to make for my, in my opinion, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of Scream. I think scream mm-hmm. is absolutely brilliant. But it's hard now to make a a teen scary movie Mm -hmm. without it being almost cliche. Like I said, truth or dare is a guilty pleasure. You know, Ouija is okay, but you got to have the right formula. And a lot of these people stick to the same teen type formula and it just doesn't work for me anymore. Maybe it's because I'm a 35-year-old man now. I don't bash people's work. You know, good for you. You're making art and someone enjoys it. But that Mm -hmm. is just really not for me. You know.
0: Yeah. And I think that at the heart of what makes Origin Evil work as well as it does again is because of the attention spent on developing the characters and whatnot. And I mean, Lulu Wilson, everybody in this movie is fantastic, but really, Lulu Wilson, I think, sells a performance that is up there with some of the greatest possession uh, performances oh. of all time. I mean, she does, su- there's such a even-handed approach to her possession, right? It's never just sort of like, oh, and in the next scene, she's just wholly possessed and everything. Like, yep. there's such a, masterful build up to that and she's able to really convey to the audience the various stages of that possession and how she's becoming more and more obviously uh, possessed by the spirit and whatnot and she's able to sell that in a way that is frightening but also heartbreaking i think that's the root of a lot of possession right if it's not heartbreaking if it's just like matter of fact she's possessed then it loses a lot of sort of the emotional investment not only in the character but and what's happening. If you don't care what's happening, obviously you're gonna bounce off of it pretty hard.
1: And especially for her being 11 years old at the time of filming that movie between 10 and 11. Which is You would never ever go in there looking at her It's just like, ah, you know, just a little girl actress. She's completely on par with everybody else in the movie. And like you said, that's yeah. not a knock towards anybody else. That's just how great she was because this movie has a fantastic cast from top to bottom. Um, like you said, it's a Flanagan cast. If Flanagan puts you in his film, you better believe that you you should feel proud because he knows what he's doing. And yeah. he, that's another thing about Flanagan. All his films are perfectly cast, mm. perfectly cast.
0: I'm struggling to think of any of his films that I've seen that someone is ill cast. right? And mm. I think that even if it's somebody that's not in his general uh, pool of actors and actresses that he pulls from, he's still able to insert them into this Flanagan family in a way that he really is able, is great at finding people's strengths as an actor or an actress, right? This idea that they're perfectly cast because he knows exactly where to put them in terms of his stories and his narratives. Um, and that's a really rare trait in a director. I mean, of course, there's other director, plenty of directors that know how to use actors in the right way and where to put them in. But for somebody, again, like we were saying, that does not have the biggest filmography out there of a relatively new director at the same time, the quality is there and the talent that he is able to amass seemingly is there for every single project that he undertakes.
1: Right. And Lulu Wilson has quietly became a huge name in the horror world. Yeah. I mean, cause you've got her in this, you've got her in Becky, Annabelle creation, deliver us from evil. Like, you know, she's becoming one of those, you know, young actresses that gravitates to the horror. I mean, she's only what 15 now, 14, 15.
0: Something. Like that. Yeah.
1: I believe she was in The Haunting of Hill House. I don't know if she was in Bly Manor or not, but I know she was in Hill House. She was in Hill House. You know, so she's yeah. just one of those actresses that has quickly at a very young age made a big name for herself. And that, you know, really started for me with Ouija mm. Origins of Evil.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And it's again, I mean, we were talking about how Flanagan doesn't recycle a lot of his uh, storytelling and things like that and scares and whatnot. I feel that Lulu Wilson's the same way in her performance, whether she is cognizant of that or not, just because in terms of like being such a young actress coming up, I still feel like every role that she takes, it brings something new to it. And especially with things like going from this to uh, creation, or I forget what order they came out in. But again, it's not her kind of just taking a persona that she used in a past film and continuing with it. I think about Becky being a fantastic example of her kind of, moving outside of the comfort zone of horror in a way where that was a much more physically demanding movie i believe just in terms of like how brutal that movie gets and her being at the forefront of a lot of those action sequences and things like that so it's fantastic again just to like see members of this flanagan family evolve just as much as flanagan himself evolves with every film that he undertakes
1: and i feel like she's one of those people too that uh when you look at lulu wilson specifically Everything she's been in besides maybe like that top and a half remake has been complete gold. You know, yeah. like if you hear Lulu Wilson's going to be in something, it's something you're probably going to want to watch because she knows how to pick them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think also we should talk about we mentioned, obviously, this is an exceptionally scary PG-13 horror movie. But aside from the scene that you mentioned with the pos- the initial possession, what is another moment that really kind of jumps out at you at making this uh, stand up amongst horror as being one of the, uh, de facto PG 13 horror movies.
1: When, um, the father, father, Tom, when she screams in his face and he oh, goes yeah. flying back and his neck gets broken. Yeah. That's oh. another big one to me, man. Like that's huge scare.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also just the brutality of that moment jumps out at you because again, I wasn't expecting cause I have only seen, uh, I'd only seen it twice before, uh, this most recent rewatch, but like, again, Flanagan doesn't over rely on obviously blood or gore or just excessive violence in his films. And yet when he throws in that little moment, like father Tom landing and breaking his neck, and it's apparent that he did like, it is a, such a more brutal moment than any other. I mean, how many times have we seen characters get their necks broken in horror, right? We're pretty much desensitized to that. And yet the uh, legwork that Flanagan puts in in making sure that we're emotionally invested in these people and seeing good, wholesome people, having the worst things imaginable happen to them. I mean, it makes that violence memorable and it hits in a way that it doesn't feel like we're desensitized to it in a way that we normally might be.
1: Well, even when Father, when he gets um, possessed himself, you know, yeah. when you see him with the white eyes, you know, like, which is in this movie, that's the sign that possession happened you know, you're like, no, not him, you know, (laughs) or the boyfriend. When you see the boyfriend hanging, you know, you're just like, whoa, man, like they get dark quick in this movie. There's, that's another thing. There's no part of this movie where you're like, is it happening? Is it Mm going to happen? Is it going to happen? When it happens, it -hmm. happens and you're in.
0: And it doesn't really reel back at all. Right. There's no sort of like ebbs and flows, which again, that comes back to just Flanagan's pacing in general of his films. It starts so subtle. And then it starts building, building, building. And then on the basically the run up to the peak of the scares of the film, it just doesn't let up. And it just, if anything, gets even more brutal and more creepy and more just uh, very terrifying in a way that I don't think we were expecting for the majority of the film. Because again, I mean, it's hard to not to go into a PG-13 horror movie. And at least you might be open to them like we are, but in the back, I don't know about you, but like in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, are they going to be able to make this memorable though in a way right. that is truly scary because of course you there's no restrictions in terms of making us like characters or telling a compelling story but there's at least a fear that there might be some limitations in truly capitalizing on the horror but in this i mean it just it if had the movie been more gruesome or more graphic i feel like it wouldn't feel like a flanagan movie then because that's not his style at all and he makes the right. most out of everything he has rating included it feels
1: and if you look over time some of my favorite in the last at least in the last 10 years horror movies have been PG 13 um the first insidious movie you know mm-hmm. people forget that was PG 13 drag yeah. me to hell which is a yeah. Sam Raimi. I love that movie a quiet place um, absolutely 1408 which I love with John Cusack uh, the ring everybody forgets the ring was PG 13. You know, and oh, these yeah. are all movies that are tremendously scary, you know. But at the same time, you also have movies like The Skeleton Key, The Others, you know, these movies that The Possession, I didn't think was all that great. Um, The Boy, you know, you do have these oh, PG-13 yeah, yeah. movies that fall as lesser horror movies to me. So it, like you said, it can be really hit or miss, but it doesn't have to be, you know rated r movie in order for it to have good legit scares. one i think one of the best jump scares of all time is in insidious when they're sitting at the Mm. table and the monsters behind the bomb that's one of the i think one of the most effective jump scares of all time of any movie
0: that again speaks to direct and especially like pg-13 horror right a lot of them have a tendency to be jump scare heavy but i think that the example you just gave it proves that any technique can be effective if you know how to use it. And Flanagan still, even with his R-rated movies, he is fully cognizant of that, and he just knows that, well, if I want this to have a payoff, I can't kind of string people along for the first third of my movies with a bunch of, I mean, he has red herrings in his films, and yet they don't feel like they are overly egregious, they're not popping up every five minutes, which he knows that if he's gonna make a story, the foundation of it, again, has to be family, and it has to be characters that you're given a reason to like, even if there may be, they might be engaged in some activities that aren't the most uh, wholesome for characters to. Because I love that you mentioned that at the beginning, because the ability to take a cast of characters, introduce them, show them basically exploiting and being grifters off of people that are vulnerable. I mean, any number of directors could try and do that, but... You might end up hating the characters and then you're like, well, good. I hope they get fucking possessed. But yeah, Flanagan's ability to really make them sympathetic and show that, well, they're not doing this because they want to. They have to survive before they even have to survive a possession. They have to survive the real world, which is unlikely in that point. (laughs) Possessed or not, you still got to eat,
1: drink every day.
0: Yeah. In order to do that, you need
1: money. And like I said, yeah, it it sucks they're giving people false hope. But like you said, they're not being evil or mean about it. Mm -hmm. You know, they do want people leaving there with a sense of closure about the loved ones that they came for, which is in itself. It's nice. It's good. But at the same time, like you said, a a lesser director, it may come across as contrived and we might hate these characters.
0: And I think that the way that that first seance ends with Lulu Wilson like going off script, basically, and lunging at somebody and pretending to be this spirit and demon. I think that that moment is so key because, sure, you might look at it as like, okay, that's one of those cheap PG-13 jump scares, but it establishes a conversation that follows up and the mother basically says that, well, that's not why we're doing this. And I think that that scene is so key in establishing everything you need to know about the characters, which goes back to what you were saying of why that is such an important beginning for the film. And it really just, I mean, from that moment on, it primed me, the first time I saw the movie, to think, oh, okay, I, can't, I gotta leave like all my preconceived notions at the door. Uh, I can't assume anything about this, whether it's PG-13, whether it's a sequel or a prequel in this case. Um, it's one of those things that Flanagan really just does a fantastic job of just reassuring the audience early on. This is going to be very different than what you think it is. And yeah. every single time I've had to trust in him, I've walked away satisfied with just being scared, scared to pieces or being enamored with characters that I was I didn't want to leave. I wanted to I wanted another 90 seconds or another two minutes with them because I became so invested in them.
1: And like you said, it's not just the scares. Right know, with all his movies, you want these characters to live. You want them to survive. You want them to not only just survive, but to succeed, you know, and I can think that about all his movies that you watch, there's characters in all his movies that you are genuinely pulling for. But me and you, you know, like a lot of other fans of horror movies, we get more wrapped up in these because we put ourselves in situations of film because of our huge love for film. And I feel like that really, for me especially, can be a downfall sometimes because I get too invested in certain characters (laughs) and then they die and I'm like, no! So I, I definitely one of the super invested guys that loves the movies, loves the characters, loves the storytelling. So I think that's why I'm such a big Flanagan fan, not just as a horror fan, but as someone who loves a story, loves character development, loves cinematography. I mean, look at the Haunting mm-hmm. in Hill House, the gothic aesthetic that has. Um, the dude knows what he's doing and he knows how to, like you said, not just with the actors and actresses, but he knows how to pick everybody around mm-hmm. him to succeed yeah. and do well.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I guess before uh, before we wrap up, if you had to pick a Flanagan double feature, what would be your introduction film for somebody that was unfamiliar with him? And then one of his works that everybody should watch, whether they're familiar with him or not familiar.
1: Uh, My introduction film would be this one, Ouija Origins of Evil, Um, because like you said, it's scary, but it still has that story enough to where people are going to understand it, they're going to love it. and they're going to fall in love with characters and one of the biggest things we've already talked about it but when the mom says that's not what we're doing here that makes you fall in love with her as a parent too like because kids can get crazy you know they can try to <laughs> you know go off script but for the mom to reel her back in like that and not be shitty about it was fantastic and then a flanagan movie i know that this is probably the one that everybody says but i gotta go doctor sleep man i think that's yep. one of the best movies ever made it's it's so fantastic and it doesn't feel as long as it is there's no points that are dragging the cast is brilliant and it's hard with a movie like dr sleep that has the amount of cast members in it it's hard to really reel that in and have so many uh actors that nail their their roles like this one does i rose the
0: hat yeah oh my gosh one of the best characters ever I mean, best one of the best of horror time. villains. Yeah, yeah. and I think that picking those two movies that you did is the perfect double feature just because I hope you have some time on your hands though because <laughs> <laughs> that Doctor Sleep uh, director's cut is a doozy. But to your credit, what you had mentioned, it doesn't feel like it, right? Flanagan is able to put us into a world and it might be a three hour movie, but it sure only feels like a two hour one at the end of the day. And I think that picking those two movies is great because it shows you, A, what he's capable of doing in an established world, and then really Dr. Sleep is the, is like a horror odyssey extrapolation on that, right? Because he's returning yeah. to the, shi- the world of The Shining, and yet he's able to expand on that in a way that's all his own. It doesn't feel like he's trying to do Kubrick or Stephen King. It feels like sure. he is doing a mashup, but also his own voice doesn't get lost. And I think that that's key for Flanagan in that he never feels like he is trying to do an impression of someone else, whether that be the source material that his film is deriving from, or even just in general of like horror filmmaking, it never feels like he's trying to do something that, Oh, so-and-so is doing, or so-and-so had success with. He just feels very authentic to whatever sub-genre he's dabbling in. And obviously the horror genre in general.
1: Well, I love one thing I love about Dr. Sleep is they recasted, um, jack nicholson with henry thomas from you know a lot of mike flanagan's work he did not do jack nicholson very well but he did jack torrance amazingly yes like he was his own jack torrance mm-hmm. and he was his own bartender obviously at the moment but when you look at him i didn't see jack nicholson but i did see jack torrance in that scene you know? yeah and that to me is one of the most powerful scenes in all cinema. Is when he's like, If I do this, dad, I'm gonna be losing a lot more. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. your money is no good here. He's like, I'm losing a lot more than money if I take this shot. Like, you mirror that with the original Shining bar scene. And those are two of the most powerful scenes in all of cinema history. And anybody that hasn't seen Dr. Sleep because they hear, Oh, it's a sequel to The Shining, and The Shining was a perfect movie. I agree there are movies that should have been standalone movies. You know, Jaws being one of them. I feel like that was the perfect standalone movie that shouldn't have had any sequels. But like you were saying earlier, Dr. Sleep does not heavily rely on The Shining to be a good movie. Yeah. You don't have to have seen The Shining to even mm-hmm. enjoy Dr. Sleep. You can go into Dr. Sleep completely blind. Like you said, there are certain shots, like maybe when he's looking in the door, you know, mm-hmm. at the motel. There are certain shots like that. Or when he's talking to uh, a Halloran. Dick Halloran, you know, those things might go over your head a little bit when he's calling him Doc and all that. But those are little things that in the grand scheme of the movie aren't really that important.
0: Right. You know, And if anything, they're it's it's disguised fan service in a lot of ways, because obviously we are going to get the most out of them. And yet they still have some significance to the larger thing. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like Dr. Sleep ever comes to a screeching halt. And it's like, now I'm going to talk to the fans of The Shining Universe or The Fans of King or Kubrick or whatever. It always feels like it is everything that Flanagan does is complementary to the story and the moment he's telling. And he's able Mm -hmm. to obviously allude to the other film that it's connected to, but also he's able to derive strong emotions and meaning from things that everybody can relate to on some level. Uh, Obviously, the things that happen in uh, Doctor Sleep are pretty aggressive sometimes, but at the same time, (laughs) humans are at the core of everything and the human experience and whatnot. And even if you haven't had that experience, maybe yourself, there's an emotion that goes along with that experience that everybody has felt at some point or another.
1: We look at Dr. Sleep and like the Jacob Tremblay scene is one of the hardest scenes to watch ever in any movie, you know, but it's also, it's, I hate to say, listen, this is going to make me sound dark, but that scene is also done with class. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's a terrible scene and it's heartbreaking and you know as the father it's one of those scenes where you know a tear goes down your eyes you're watching it but at the same time it's done so well that you can't turn away right and you know that's a scene where we we see how truly evil rose the hat is but we also see how amazing jacob trombley is in that scene because you're you believe that kid is hurt you believe he's suffering you believe he's in the most pain is it gonna hurt oh yeah hopefully You know, like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, it's heartbreaking. Flanagan's a genius. You know, and it sucks that the Academy doesn't give horror the recognition that it deserves because that guy deserves every award that there possibly is.
0: And I think that that scene you mentioned is a fantastic example of him not being egregious or exploitive or every single scene that he includes in his films, and especially with Dr. Sleep, it serves a greater purpose and nothing lasts longer than it should. Like, again, had it been any other director, we would have had to have seen more of the sort of brutality or the violence of that scene. And we see very minimal, and that's a testament to how disturbingly skillful he is at bringing across horror, right? He doesn't have to show us egregious slashes and dismemberments and all these things, obviously. Um, to make it effective and to make it heartbreaking and to bring a tear to your eye. But uh, listen, Ken, this was an absolute pleasure getting to have you on uh, Daily Horror Habit, and I hope we get to uh, collaborate again in the future.
1: Dude, anytime. It's been an honor. Thank you so much, man.
0: One more reminder to check out Ken's horror channel featuring interviews with horror fanatics like you and me, Sledgehammer Horror on YouTube. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Sledgehammer H-O-R and Ken himself at Kenny Sledge. And I'll see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.